The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. As I go through those verses, which I frequently quote before we start our study on Wednesday night, it has struck me as we each week that we've gone through this Daniel study that those verses really portray Daniel's focus. He is a young man. He's 15, 16 years of age, yet he is someone who has committed the word so deeply into his thinking that he is uh, used mightily of God so that at the young age, as we're going to see by next week, young age of about uh, 17 or maybe 18, he is placed in one of the highest positions in the empire. It's easy to think that somehow Daniel must have been a little older, but he's only, he's just right out of training. He gets appointed to about the third highest, fourth highest position in the land because of the wisdom that he has from, from doctrine. And the same wisdom that's available to Daniel is available to you and me because And we have even more. We not only have more doctrine, we have the completed canon of Scripture unavailable to Daniel, but we have the indwelling and the filling of God the Holy Spirit who enables us to understand doctrine, again, something that Daniel did not have. So we have resources that go far beyond anything that Daniel had, and so we can achieve at least the level of spiritual wisdom and maturity that he had. And, of course, we do that under the teaching ministry and filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So, before we study the Word this morning, or this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayer, in case anyone needs to use 1 John 1, 9 and get in fellowship. And then I will start with prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this privilege and opportunity we have to study your word, to fellowship together around eternal truth, that there is absolute truth and you have revealed it to us so that we are not uh, locked away in some sort of box that uh, where we're left upon our own resources to try to figure out what reality is and what truth is, but that you have spoken to us. You not only exist, but you are not. Silent, You have communicated clearly to us in a way designed to be understandable and comprehensible. And so, Father, as we study your word tonight, we pray that we might clearly understand these things through the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that we might be courageous enough and objective enough under his ministry to face the principles that we're studying, to see how they apply to our lives, and to respond accordingly. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Last time as we were... Uh, concluding our study of the first chapter of Daniel, we came upon the subject of the doctrine of dreams and visions as revealed in Scripture. It seems to me that uh, I'm never, as much as I've been around the ministry and around people for the last 25 years, I'm never, uh, or at least I'm always still amazed at how credulous some Christians can be. They'll just believe anything. Some guy comes along and says he can heal them, or that God spoke to him, God uh, revealed something to them, they, they immediately follow, follow that kind of a person. They believe that happened as if they've never been taught any doctrine whatsoever. And then on the other hand, uh, you, have, you have people who uh, don't believe that there's any such thing as a God, that they completely reject any notion of the supernatural, and that God has created, or that there is a creator, but they want to interpret everything within the realm of pure naturalism. 
And in our lesson this evening, we are going to see both extremes. We're going to learn doctrine that addresses both those who are so credulous that every thought, every whim, every uh, spasm that they have, they want to attribute somehow to uh, God and God speaking to them, God talking to them, God somehow directly guiding them. And then at the other extreme, we will address those who don't think there is a God at all. So between those two extremes, we find the truth of God's Word, that God is a God who is who exists and a God who communicates to man. But there are uh, clear stipulations and procedures that regulate that communication to man and that that communication to man is designed to be understood, not something that is uh, unclear, not something that is uh, enshrouded in mystery. It is for some, and intentionally for some, but the majority of divine revelation was designed to be understood and to be understandable. And the reason it is not understood and the reason that people reject it, it has nothing to do with its Authenticity, it has nothing to do with its clarity, but everything to do with their negative volition. And we will see that this evening. Now, in the last couple of weeks, we've looked at how Daniel and his three friends took a stand against the human viewpoint systems of their day. Specifically, the greatest manifestation, maybe in all of human history, at least at that time in human history, of the kingdom of man and all of man's efforts to establish himself as a, the ruler of the planet. And in the midst of that, they were being indoctrinated by this great power, the Babylonian Empire, to think like the Babylonians wanted them to think. And they went through a three-year indoctrination training period where they were taken through a graduate school in order to prepare them to function at the highest levels of government service. And as part of that, they were expected to perform certain things. And for the most part, they went along, but they chose their battle, the, the, the point of their battle very carefully, and that had to do with the, the matter of their diet. And so they stood their ground. They would not disobey the Mosaic Law. And we saw the principle there that if the believer is going to engage in civil disobedience, if the believer is going to engage in civil disobedience, it is not a matter of going out in terms of Christian activism. But that civil disobedience takes place only when the Word of God specifically tells the believer to either do something or to not do something, and the government is telling that individual to disobey, specifically disobey or violate a principle of God's Word. And the response of the believer is to simply, privately, and individually continue to be obedient to God's Word. It is not authorized in Scripture for them to go out and pull together a group of other like-minded people and then go on, get involved in demonstrations or peace marches or sit-ins or any other kind of passive demonstration or activistic response. You never have that authorized in Scripture. You never have it uh, modeled in Scripture. There's no example of that in Scripture. And yet, again and again and again, we find people like Daniel in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. We find people like Joseph in the court of Pharaoh. We find people like the Apostle Paul who is traveling throughout the Roman Empire dealing with, and the Roman Empire had every social abuse known to us and multiplied to the tenth degree, and yet you never see the Apostle Paul challenging those things or calling on people to get involved in any kind of Christian activism whatsoever because the issue is not social injustice. The issue is not political injustice. The issue always begins with the gospel and if any society is going to be transformed, if it doesn't start at the starting point of the gospel, then the starting point is part of the thinking of the kingdom of man. It's part of human viewpoint. And so what happens with all this Christian activism is their very message of the gospel is tarnished and compromised at the very outset because they've adopted a human viewpoint means of handling the situation as opposed to the scriptures. So rather than getting involved in some sort of overt expression of activism, Daniel and his friends just went to the people in authority. They proposed a certain scenario, a test. Let's go 10 days and see how it goes. We'll, we'll be on our diet of vegetables and water. You give everybody else the regular diet. And at the end of 10 days, we'll see that God blesses us and we'll be stronger, we'll be sharper, we'll be in better shape than everyone else. And not only was that true for that 10-day period, but that was true for the entire three-year period of their instruction. 
And at the end of that period, we come to Daniel 1, verse 17, where we read, And as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. So we see that for all four of these men, God honored them and God blessed them with giving them a, a, an ability to, to, to understand in a better way than any of the other students, any of the others in the class, all the material that they were being taught, and then to apply it in a much better way to this life situation so that they were honored by, those, by their instructors and those in authority in the Babylonian Empire. Furthermore, Daniel, we're told in this passage, is given something extra. He is given the ability to understand all kinds of visions and dreams. Now, we must understand that verses 17 through 21 are a summary section. They summarize the blessing of God upon these men in terms of their overall career as bureaucrats in the Babylonian Empire. But it also makes the point that Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. And that tells us at this point, the author wants us to note that Daniel probably recognized, not probably, Daniel did recognize that he had the gift of prophecy, the Old Testament gift of prophecy, and that he was going to be used in that way by God. When we get into Daniel chapter 2, and we get to the scenario where all of the, all of the magicians and all of the astrologers and all of the counselors to the king are put under a death sentence because no, nobody's able to tell the king his dream or the interpretation of it. And Daniel says, go tell the king that I'll be able to do it. Daniel's not guessing he will be able to do it. Daniel already knows that he has this ability. And Daniel 1.17 is giving us a foreshadowing. The author is, is using a, a, an excellent literary technique of foreshadowing to prepare us for what's going to happen in the next chapter. Also... In this, when, when it, it, it emphasizes his understanding of dreams, when we get to 2, 1, when we get to uh, chapter 2, verse 1, we'll see that Nebuchadnezzar had many dreams. And so the foreshadowing here is we're preparing, he's pre- the writer is preparing the reader for what's going to happen in the second chapter. And then in verse 18 we read, Then at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, that is, at the end of their three-year training period, the commander of the officials presented them to Nebuch- before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them, so he knew who they were. He interviewed them. This was probably not more than 50 or 60 uh, young men who had been brought as captives from Jerusalem. And it might have even been a smaller group by the end of the three-year Period. So the king specifically knows who they are and talks with them. And out of them all, not one was found, the scripture says, like Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. So they entered the king's personal service. They are the top four in the class, and Daniel is at the head of the class. And then we come to Daniel 1, verse 20. And as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all of his realm. Now, the term for magicians and conjurers relates to those who were skilled in all of the uh, uh, both occultic arts and scientific arts. The Babylonians were the culture that had the achieved at this stage in human history the greatest advance in, in astrology, which they in astronomy, which they did not distinguish from astronomy. So they're mixing mythology with science. But in the, mid, in, in the midst of all of that, they were advancing in their understanding of arithmetic, their understanding of numbers, their understanding of geometry and different principles like that, so that even the Greeks and the Egyptians would try to send people to study under the Babylonians in order to get their, their wisdom. And the term for the magicians refers to those who were over all of that, not just magicians in the sense like we think of somebody who can pull a rabbit out of a hat, but we're talking about those who were skilled in these arts. The term for magician, in fact, really refers to those who were scribes. And it was so few people had the ability to understand cuneiform writing or to write in cuneiform that they thought it was almost magical. And so their knowledge made them seem as if they had a special insight into reality. And it was a guarded, in in many cases, it was guarded knowledge. So that's who the magicians were and the conjurers. And these are the top people in the what we would call the State Department 
of the Babylonian Empire. These were the top advisors, the top counselors to the king. In fact, these were the same men who trained Daniel. Daniel and Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah were all in classes with these men. They trained them. They taught them everything they knew. They had taught Nebuchadnezzar. They had been his personal tutors when he had grown up. And yet what Nebuchadnezzar discovers is what these men have from doctrine. What these men have from the blessing of God because of their commitment to make doctrine the number one priority in their life makes their advice ten times better than anyone else. They have objectivity, number one. Number two, they understand reality because it's not based on a, a false mythological system and a pseudo-system of astrology, but it's based on reality. It's based on doctrine. So because of their objectivity and their orientation to reality because of doctrine, their advice is accurate. And then the last verse in that chapter, verse 21, states, And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Now, we know that Daniel continued beyond that. But he probably started writing this when he was an old man, 80 plus years of age, in the first year of Cyrus the king. So he didn't... He didn't know when he was going to die. He could only say how long he had lived up to that particular point. And then in verse 1 of chapter 2, he writes, Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Literally in the Hebrew, he dreamed many dreams. We'll see next time when we come to the dream analysis that he had dreamed the same dream night after night after night, and it just shook him to the very core of his thinking. Because the dream, ultimately, it challenged his understanding of the meaning and purpose of his life and everything that he had accomplished. And the result was that his spirit was troubled, which means that he was agitated. His sleep left him, which means that he was suffering from insomnia. He was consumed by the fact that maybe his life was really meaningless. And all that he had achieved by this time in his life would just basically turn to dust and blow away as time went by. But what I want us to pay attention to tonight is the connection between verse 17 of chapter 1, that Daniel understood all kinds of visions and dreams, and that is foreshadowing to the statement in 2.1 that Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, because in that we see that it will be Daniel who is the one who enables Nebuchadnezzar to understand his dreams. Now, the question always comes up from folks. Every now and then someone says, well, well, Pastor, how do I know that God isn't speaking to me through some dream? And every now and then somebody will say that, well, I think that God was, was, was leading me last night through a dream that I had, or, or God spoke to me last night in a dream that I had. And so we need to take some time to understand the dynamics of divine revelation through dreams and visions. If people would just go to the Scriptures and do an analysis of all the times that dreams and visions are used in the Scriptures, they would understand why God know, how God worked when He revealed Himself through dreams and visions and why that doesn't fit anything that goes on in pers- people's experience whenever someone claims that God has spoken to them to a dream and a vision. It never fits the pattern and why it was that God w- had found it necessary to reveal things through dreams and visions. So, first of all, we need to recognize that dreams occur and are produced under three conditions. Dreams are produced under three conditions. First of all, there are physical factors. There are physical factors. There are physical factors such as exhaustion, diet, perhaps someone has a chemical imbalance and they begin to hallucinate, perhaps they have uh, induced visions or dreams through uh, drugs that they are taking. This was a typical procedure, especially among the various American American Indian tribes during the 18th uh, and 19th centuries. They would, especially like in Texas, you had the Comanche tribes, and it was standard procedure that they would get together on occasion, and they would have these great celebrations, and then they would pull out a peyote button. And peyote had a hallucinogenic drug in it, and usually the highest chief 
there in, in, in rank would be the first one to get the fresh peyote button so he would get the greatest amount of, of the drug. And then he would start chewing the peyote until he went off into his hallucinogenic trance. And then he would pass it on to the next person and it would go through all of the men and then they would sit around on this uh, peyote high all day having dreams and visions. Other things that they would do is they would send young men out when they reached a certain age. They would go out into the wilderness for a, uh, a rite of passage into adulthood and they would go for a number of days without food or water and that, of course, would break down their psychological defenses and in a state of exhaustion, finally, they would have a dream or a vision and that was to tell them something about the nature of their future and the role that they would play in the tribe and a number of other factors. So that's a physically induced cause of a dream or a vision. The second way the dreams are produced is through an emotional state. Perhaps you're in a high state of anxiety or worry or intensity. Sometimes if you, you notice, uh, this happens to me, you watch a movie that is, uh, that is intense. Uh, last night I watched Saving Private Ryan again. And that's an intense movie with a lot of combat scenes. And I found that two or three times during the night I woke up sort of replaying those scenes in my mind while I was asleep. So there are different emotional states that we can get in that, that uh, affect the dreams that we have. But those dreams simply reflect some sort of level of, of turmoil or emotional upset or disturbance that we've had. Or maybe we're, it's a combination of a physical factor as well. But the dreams don't have any meaning. They don't have any significance. They're not there to tell us about the future or to forecast anything. They don't give us great insight into our psychological character, despite everything that Freud said in his manual on dream analysis. And then the third reason that, or the third source of dreams is an outside source. An outside source, a supernatural source where the information or the content of the dream is introduced from outside. There are two sources possible. The first is Satan and the second is God. Uh, we can infer that it's possible that Satan can, uh, in some situations, uh, introduce dreams through a comparison of Scripture in Jeremiah 23.32 with Deuteronomy 13.1, which is the prohibition against false those who claim to have a vision or a dream and their false prophets, with Colossians 2.18, where visions are connected to the worship of angels, and in the context of Colossians 2, those angels are to be understood as demons, the demons that lie behind the idolatrous worship factors. So dreams are produced by three conditions, physical conditions, emotional conditions, and an outside or supernatural influence. Now, God clearly introduces and uses dreams at times in history to communicate uh, in specific information to people. Second point, the doctrine of dreams. There are 22 dreams cataloged in Scripture, 16 in the Old Testament and 6 in the New Testament. There are 22 dreams cataloged in the Scriptures. Now, that's not much. When you consider 3,000 years of history covered in the Scriptures, only 22 dreams, this is obvious that dreams are not a primary means of God's communication of revelation. Of these dreams, these 16 dreams in the Old Testament... Eleven of those sixteen dreams occurred before the Old Testament was written. They occurred before the Old Testament was written down. And I'm not like a liberal. I don't believe the Old Testament was written down late. I think it was written down very early. But those dreams were designed to communicate God's will, God's plan, God's purposes to people who did not have a written canon of Scripture. Second, in the New Testament, six, those six dreams that are revealed in the New Testament occurred before the New Testament was written. I think the last dream in Acts occurs just about the time that Paul had written the first two or three epistles in the New Testament. So dreams are given before there's a written canon of Scripture. Therefore, dreams were designed to communicate specific information from God to individuals before there was a written canon of Scripture. 
Now that's dreams. There's a slight distinction between a dream and a vision in the Scriptures. And these distinctions are important. Don't slide over them. Don't think that dreams and visions are synonymous. There are certain similarities, but there are some specific distinctions. For example, the term vision derives from the Hebrew word machazah, which means vision, light, or place of seeing. It's even used for a window. And that gives that idea of a window gives us an understanding of what the image is here. In a vision, it is like looking in a window into another room. And in this case, that room that you're looking into is in another place in space-time history. So God is opening up a window in the space-time continuum to let this individual see something that's going on at another time and perhaps in another place. The mistake that is usually made here is to compare this to what is normally practiced in other religions and is called an ecstatic trance. You find this with the whirling dervishes in Islam. You find this getting into an ecstatic trance situation, as I referred to among uh, American Indian tribes. You find it in uh, among Jewish mystics. You find it among American Pentecostals. You find it among all sorts of religious groups. There's always those who seem to have this propensity to go into some sort of altered state of consciousness, some sort of ecstatic emotional trance. Now, we have to understand what ecstasy means. And I don't mean the popular drug that's being abused today. Ecstasy is defined by the dictionary as a state of emotion so intense that the person is taken beyond rational control. Now, notice that. A state of emotion. It emphasizes emotion, not rationality in reason. It indicates that the person is beyond rational control. He is not in a state of, of cognition. He is not in a state of intellection. He is not in a state of logical control of his rational faculties, but it is an emotional state, a state that emphasizes feeling. And it is often induced through the use of drugs, through the use of various techniques, through the use of chants, through the use of dancing. All of these different things can play a part in getting this person into the right frame of mind. It was typical in the ancient world in the worship of Dionysius. The um, priestesses would get up and they would have uh, various... They would have these orgies where they would drink enormous amounts of wine and food and they would dance and dance and dance faster and faster and faster to the beat of drums until they would fall down and just collapse and they would go into a a trance-like state where they would have visions about the God. But that's not the dynamic that you see in scriptures when one of the prophets goes into a trance. In fact, what happens in scripture is categorically different from what happens in pagan religions. God communicates rationally to man. He communicates content. He doesn't expect man to shut down his his thinking. See, that's the problem with the naturalistic worldview that has dominated Western society for the last couple hundred years is that they think that somehow faith is antagonistic to reason, that in order to have faith you shut down your thinking. Now, once society buys into this concept that faith is opposed to thinking, then the next step is mysticism. It opens the door and prepares the groundwork for a mystical concept of understanding God. So the biblical concept of a vision was radically different from the pagan concept of a vision. And we must keep that in mind. When you look at the scriptures and these men are in trances, not trances, but when they're having a vision, they are cognitively alert. They are thinking. They're asking intelligent questions of God. There's dialogue taking place. Their reason is not shut down. Their reason is fully operative. There's no indication that it's an emotional state, but it's a purely rational and cognitive state. Point number four. There are at least 15 visions in the Old Testament. Now, there are probably more because that seemed to be a normative way that God used to communicate information to the prophets. And Isaiah will starts off, this is a, a, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. And you have other prophets stating this is the vision. That word is used many times. Sometimes it's not used, but it's, it seems to be that that's probably what was going on, even though it's not stated. So there's at least 15 stated visions in the Old Testament. There are probably many more. 
uh, even though the term is left out. In the New Testament, there are seven visions recorded. Now, the one thing that all these visions have in common is they're given to believers. Only believers are recipients of a vision. Now, some unbelievers have dreams given to them. But the difference is, the difference is that in a dream, the recipient is purely passive. But in a vision, the recipient is actively involved. That's going to be the distinction we'll see. Visions were given to believers only. Never does an unbeliever have a vision. And that leads to point five. In contrast to dreams which transpired while the recipient was asleep or are unconscious, visions included a conscious, rational recipient who often engaged in conversation and seeks elucidation. He sought clarification. He wanted explanation. He engaged in a dialogue with God in the midst of that vision. So in dreams, the person is completely passive, but in visions, the person is always an active, conscious participant, though he's not seeing something in his present space-time reality. And that, again, indicates that the person is rational, not emotional. It's not an emotive state. The sixth thing we observe when we analyze these various dreams and visions is that God only communicated with dreams, or God communicated with dreams to unbelievers. Dreams were for only unbelievers. Though they might not have had any understanding of what they saw. Now, some had some understanding. But it was because the, the dream, the information in the dream, was so clear to them. And we'll see an example of that in just a minute. Dreams were given to unbelievers because they're passive. They're not engaged in a conversation with God because God is perfectly righteous and God can't have a fellowship with someone who is not saved, someone who has not had the sin problem dealt with. And the sin problem is dealt with only by faith alone in Christ alone. So if a person, even in the Old Testament, has not put their faith alone in the Old Testament form of the gospel, which anticipated the coming of Jesus Christ in the future, and believing that God would send a Savior to deliver man from the penalty of sin, that if that faith wasn't there then God could not engage in rapport, conversation with that individual. But with believers, he could engage in that conversation, so that's a two-way uh, communication that would be involved in a vision. Now, the first dream that's mentioned in Scripture is listed in Jeremiah 20, I mean, excuse me, Genesis chapter 20, verse 3, and it occurred with the <coughs> king of Gerar, by the name of Abimelech. Turn with me in your Bible and let's take a little analysis of what's going on in this situation. The background is that Abraham and Sarah are, uh, have gone to him during a time of, of, of famine. But once again, Abraham had done the same thing earlier with the Pharaoh of Egypt. Uh, Abraham is afraid that uh, apparently Sarah was quite beautiful. And he was afraid that the king would exercise his power and take her away from him. So he says, okay, let's not tell him you're my wife. Let's just tell him you're my sister. Well, it's true that Sarah was his half-sister, so it was a half-lie. But God is going to protect Sarah. Remember, Sarah is the one through whom he has promised the, the chosen race to come through, the, the seed. And eventually she would uh, become pregnant with, uh, I, um, with Isaac. And she needed, he wanted, God needed to protect her womb so there wouldn't be any confusion about who the father of the child was. So God warns Abimelech in a dream. This occurs in verse 3. God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him. So there is, it's not a, this is not a picture image, but is a specific communication of information. He says, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now, Abimelech did not miss the import of the message. Then in verse 6 we read, Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. God protected Sarah. And he tells Abimelech that he understands that it's not Abimelech's fault, but it's Abraham's fault because of his, uh, his deception. 
And so he was not going to hold Abimelech accountable for that. So this is the first of many different dreams in the Scriptures. And we need to analyze them, and we're going to do so under two categories. And that's point number eight, that there are two kinds of dreams in the Old Testament. The first, dreams of Jews, and the second, dreams of Gentiles. There are some dreams related to Jews and other dreams related to Gentiles. Now, we're not going to have time to go through every single dream, although that would be certainly informative and helpful. But I just want to hit some of the high points. So the next dream I want to look at is a dream of Jacob in Genesis 28, verse 12 and following. Genesis 28, verse 12 and following. Jacob is on his way back to Israel after he has been in, uh, way back into the, the land, after he has been out of the land, having escaped from Esau, and he has a dream. Verse 11, uh, verse 11, he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep, so he had a hard pillow. And he had a dream. Had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending upon it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give it to you and to your descendants. What's going on here? Well, we got through, we just spent a lengthy study on covenants and dispensations, and we studied the Abrahamic covenant, that God promised Abraham a land, He promised an eternal seed, an eternal, uh, uh, eternal descendants that would be more numerous than the sand of the seashore and the stars in the sky, and He promised him uh, that His descendants would be a blessing to all people. He, God now reconfirms this covenant, this unconditional Abrahamic covenant, with his son Isaac, the promised seed. Isaac was the promised seed, and so God says in verse 13, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So you see the same three elements that are present in the Abrahamic covenant are reiterated here in Genesis 28, 12 to 14. The point I'm making is that this is not some sort of subjective, personal God's plan for Isaac's life. This is related to God's plan for the nation Israel. The dreams that we'll see in the Old Testament are not the kind of dreams that people come up with today. I mean, you talk to somebody and they say, well, I had a dream last night and God told me I ought to marry this person. You know, they're so subjective. They have to do with their individual personal life and what's going to happen tomorrow, some important decision that has to be made in their immediate life. But that is never the case in any dream or vision in the Scriptures. They all have to do with God's overall plan and purposes, first for Israel and secondly for Gentile nations as they relate to God's plan for the nation Israel. In this dream, God goes on to say in verse 15, And behold, I am with you and will... Keep you wherever you go. It's a promise of security for Isaac. And I will bring you back to this land, and for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So in this dream, uh, Isaac recognizes God's provision for his life, the reconfirmation of the Abrahamic covenant, and that God's purpose and plan for his descendants in human history. These are not self-centered dreams. Turn over a couple of more pages to another um, dream in Genesis chapter 31, verses 10 and following. Genesis chapter 31, uh, verses 10 and following. This has to do with Jacob now out of the land with his father-in-law Laban. And he, has a, he tells of another dream here, in verse, starting in verse 10. And it happened at the time when the flocks conceived that I lifted my eyes and saw in a dream. And behold, the rams which leaped upon the flocks were streaked, speckled, and gray spotted. Then the angel of God spoke to me in a dream, saying, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. 
And he said, Lift your eyes now and see all the rams which leap on the flocks are streaked, speckled, and gray spotted. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, identifying himself with the place where he saw the vision earlier, where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now, arise, get out of this land, return to the land of your family. What does this have to do with? The fulfillment of God's promise to him to fulfill the blessing of Abraham through his life. Once again, it's a national, historic promise for the per- God's purposes and plans for the nation Israel. It's not some personal, subjective uh, dream. What is God going to do with, with my life? The same thing can be said about Joseph's dream, as they're explained uh, in Genesis 37, 5 through 10, where he has the dream about the, the moon and the stars, which relate to his brother's uh, uh, eventual obedience to him, bowing down and worshiping him. And it is through that dream that God is demonstrating how, God, how he, God, will preserve the nation Israel through this famine and the leadership of Joseph over his brothers. So this is not some personal life dream telling Joseph just how God's going to use him, but has to do once again with God's preservation of the nation Israel. Let's look at another example in 1 Kings chapter 3. This has to do with Solomon, Solomon's dream in 1 Kings chapter 3. Turn over several books and here we hear about God's, God's response to Solomon's uh, prayer. Verse 5, At Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night and God said, Ask what you wish me to give you. Now, notice in this dream, earlier I said it's mostly in visions that, there's, that there is a conversation, but here you have a, a situation in a dream where there is a conversation between God and the individual. So there's a certain overlap between dreams and visions, but you never see the kind of, of dialogue with the, with the unbeliever. Uh, verse 6, Then Solomon said, Thou hast shown great loving kindness to thy servant David my father, according as he walked before thee in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward thee, and thou hast reserved for him this great loving kindness, that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. That relates to what? The Davidic covenant. That Solomon is reminding God of the covenant he made with his father David. And then in verse 7 we read, And now, O Lord, my God... Thou hast made thy servant king in place of my father David. Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen, a great people who cannot be numbered or counted for multitude. So give thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, to discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of thine? In other words, he's asking for wisdom in his leadership role over the nation Israel in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. So these are not personal, subjective revelations about an individual's personal life, but they all have to do with God's purpose and plans for the nation Israel. And then Daniel chapter 7. We have one of many of Daniel's dreams and visions. There are several in this book, and once again they have to do with the history of the nation Israel. There we read, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind. Notice, mind, the emphasis is on his thinking, it's not emotion. As he lay on his bed, then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So what we can conclude from this is that the Jews, the, the, the dreams the Jews had were about the outworking and application of God's promise to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant and how that would be worked out in human history. Well, what about Gentile dreams? There are numerous Gentile dreams as well. For example, in uh, Genesis chapter 31, the Pharaoh had the, the dream related to the drying up of the Nile and you had the seven skinny cows and the seven fat cows and then uh, Joseph was brought in to tell him what that meant. And that, once again, had to do with using a Gentile nation. Once again, a descendant of Abraham is blessing a Gentile power. The Abrahamic covenant said, through you, all nations will be blessed. So through Joseph, Egypt is being blessed. And then, in turn, Egypt will be a protectorate for the fledgling nation, the infant nation Israel, 
until they're ready to go back into the land as a nation. So Pharaoh's dreams have to do with, uh, once again, ultimately God's working out of his plan for Jewish history. In Judges 7.13, we saw this a few weeks ago in our Sunday morning study of Judges. When Gideon is about to uh, engage the Midianites in battle, he and one of his men do a little uh, reconnaissance. They sneak down to the lines of the um, Midianite army, and there they hear two of the soldiers talking, and one relates a dream to the other. Verse 13, we read of Judges 7, When Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend. And he said, Behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian. And he came to the tent and struck it so that it fell, and it turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his friend answered and said, This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. Symbolic. God's not speaking. He's just giving a symbol. And then he gave the... Uh, another unbeliever, the ability to interpret that so that when Gideon overheard that, his confidence in God would be confirmed. The dream is symbolic. Uh, Gideon was a grain farmer so that he is represented by the loaf of barley bread. And this, once again, the dream doesn't have to do with uh, Gideon's personal desire to know God's will for his life. It has to do with how God is going to give the nation victory in this war of deliverance and deliver them from the invading armies. Always these dreams have to do with God's plan for the, the history of the nation Israel. And we're going to see this with Nebuchadnezzar's dreams as well as Daniel's dreams in the book of Daniel. These are going to be used to elucidate God's plan and purposes for the nation Israel. Daniel 1.18, we read that at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. And from there, Daniel is going to be able to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, bring comfort to his soul, eventually, I think, lead him to salvation, But it is from this position that God is going to bless both the Babylonians, blessing by association with the Jews, and He is going to give us the greatest prophecies in human history. Now, in conclusion of the study on dreams, we need to realize that God no longer communicates through dreams and visions because His communication and revelation to man is now complete in the closed canon of Scripture. Anyone who claims to have a dream or vision, or that God is speaking to them, or God is speaking, or is communicating information to them apart from Scripture, is a liar, a deceiver, and is a false prophet on the basis of the Word of God. They're just following their own imagination, and it has nothing to do with truth. Now, what we've just seen is what happens to those who are, are how God speaks to people to inform us of the future of of uh, human history and the plan for mankind. The trouble is that just as on the one hand there are those people who are too credulous, they are too ready to believe that every, uh, every thought they have, every whim that comes into their soul is from God, there are those on the other hand who want to reject the fact that God exists or that God can communicate to us. And this is a position known philosophically as naturalism. The idea that God, does, there is no God, the only thing that exists is the material uh, universe. And it is out of that position that a book like Daniel is attacked. And I have said this again and again, that Daniel is one of the most attacked and assaulted books in the Bible. And the reason is that for the unbeliever, for the skeptic, for the naturalist, the fact that you have a book that claims to have been written in roughly um, 537 B.C., and to foretell the, the events that would happen in the 5th century B.C., in the 4th century B.C., in the 3rd century B.C., all the way up to the coming of Christ, and then prophetic events that wouldn't occur for another two or 3,000 years, for a book to claim that kind of, of authenticity and accuracy uh, is completely unacceptable to the skeptic. So they try to come in and find some reason 
to um, doubt everything about this book and its claims and to just show that it was really a fraud and written as history after the fact rather than before the fact. And this is a problem. And Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel faced a similar problem in their time period. In fact, what we're going to see in the next chapter is when Nebuchadnezzar has his dream, it shakes his thinking, his worldview to its very core. Because remember, he's been trained under the tutelage of, of, of the Chaldeans, the magicians, the astrologers. He, is, he has been taught their worldview, their, their mythological system, their view of evolution, that everything just kind of came out of this cosmic ooze called Piamat, according to the Babylonian uh, creation epic. And it's, uh, it may be le- have less scientific terminology, but it's not any different from the modern evolutionary theory. It's still uh, uh, chaos to order uh, procedure. And he's been taught this. And all of a sudden, he has this dream, and he doesn't know exactly what it means, but he understands, he has this intuitive grasp that somehow relates to him, this image that is going to, that, that stands up, has something to do with him, and this, this rock made without hands that smashes this image at the end of his dream, that that has something to do with his life and, and, that, and his mortality, and that all that he has done, remember at the time that, that this happens, Nebuchadnezzar is probably a young man in his late 20s, and he's achieved uh, as much as Alexander the Great has. He is the leader of the greatest empire of that time. He has defeated the two previously great empires, Assyria and Egypt. And he is a genius himself in architecture, in military matters, in administration. He, is, he has achieved everything that any human being could possibly hope to achieve. And yet all of a sudden he's faced with the fact that it all may be for naught. In the, in the sands of time... It will just blow away. And so he is going to challenge the leaders to interpret the dream. But he wants to make sure they're not just blowing smoke at him. And he's going to say, not only tell me the interpretation of the dream, but if you really know this, you're going to be able to tell me the dream. In other words, what he's saying is he's saying, validate your worldview. If if, if we're going to believe that everything that we believe is true and right, then I want some sort of objective, verifiable evidence to validate this position. And that's the same problem that we run into today, is that people ask us as believers to somehow validate what we believe. How do we know that what you say is true? And so there's a battle, this battle between truth claims, the truth claims of the unbeliever and the truth claims of the believer. And for the last two to three centuries since its inception, its roots in the, at the time of Descartes and the beginnings of the Enlightenment, modern man in what is known as the period of modernism, now of course we're in postmodernism, which is based on mysticism and irrationality, and I'll show you where that plays its part in just a minute. We, for 250 to 300 years, we have been dominated by a thought form in Western civilization saying that God really doesn't interfere with human history. God really isn't there. In fact, there is no God. Everything is the way it is simply as a result of natural causes. And it is this naturalism, this worldview of naturalism, that presupposes that God cannot speak to the events in human history, and therefore uh, everything is just a matter of chance and is a result of, of, of chaos. So we have to understand something about naturalism, because it's very present with us today and is a major influence still in many schools, many universities, and, and uh, whether it's a high school campus or a junior high campus or a college campus, it's still very evident. It's evident in the media. It's evident by the questions that uh, reporters ask. And so we need to come to an understanding of this basic worldview. I have four points to summarize the worldview of naturalism. First of all, naturalism means that matter, or espouses, that matter exists eternally and is all that there is. Matter exists eternally and is all that there is. There is no supernatural being or beings. All that there is is quantifiable. It's measurable. It's material. It's physical. There is no immaterial or supernatural. This is the starting point of naturalism. The second principle of naturalism is that the cosmos, the universe, exists as a uniformity of cause and effect in a closed system. 
the uniformity of cause and effect in a co- I mean of cause and effect in a closed in a closed system. What that means is everything is inside the box, and if there's anything outside the box, we can't know what is out there. We don't know what is out there, and if there is anything outside the box, it can't affect anything inside the box. And the box represents the known universe. If I were to chart it this way, I would draw a box, and everything that happens in the universe takes place within this box. And anything outside this box is unknown and unknowable. The problem with this is it leads to circular thinking. That if the only thing you can know is what's inside the box, then, then that becomes your presupposition. And if something comes from outside the box, then by definition, you've excluded knowledge of it. So if something comes from outside the box, by definition, it can't come inside the box. So, so now it doesn't exist because I said it can't exist. So you're always looking for a sign, but no sign is ever acceptable enough because it comes from outside the box. This happened even among the religious leaders at Jesus' time. It's interesting. Every time they asked for a sign, Jesus had just performed a miracle. You know, he just fed the 5,000 with, with uh, uh, five fish and two loaves, and they said, give us a sign. He just raised Lazarus from the dead, and they said, give us a sign. So it, it's not a matter of empirical data. It's a matter of the will. The third point is that man is a complex... According to naturalism, man is a complex of interrelationships of material particles, DNA, genetic makeup, and environment. There's no immaterial part of man. There's no soul. Everything, therefore, is just material. This is reflected in a quote from John Updike's The Pigeon Feathers. He captures the real implications of this when he writes, Without warning, David was visited by an exact vision of death, a long hole in the ground no wider than your body. Down which you were, uh, <clears throat> down down which you were uh, run while the white faces recede. Down which you were buried while the white faces recede. You try to reach them, but your arms are pinned. Shovels pour dirt in your face. There you will be forever in an upright position, blind and silent. And in time, no one will remember you, and you will never be called. As strata of rock shift. Your fingers elongate, and your teeth are distended sideways in a great underground grimace, indistinguishable from a strip of chalk. The earth tumbles on, and the sun expires. An unfaltering darkness reigns where once there were stars. How depressing. How meaningless life becomes. And that's the problem today, is this is the worldview that dominates so many campuses, so many schools, so many classrooms, so many homes, is that people despair of the meaning of life. And that's the fourth point, that death extinguishes existence. Ernst Nagel said that life was an episode between two oblivions. The point is that naturalism falls apart because it basically assumes that you can't know what's out there So if God is out there and speaks to our existence, then we automatically discredit it because we presuppose that he can't do it. So naturalism deteriorates and collapses into irrationalism. And that always happens, is that human viewpoint systems always flux between rationalism and irrationalism. They move from the rationalism of the Enlightenment and now the mysticism of postmodernism. And then it bounces back and forth because the only third acceptable option is that God speaks and God communicates. And that's unacceptable to man who is in rebellion against him. Well, next time we'll come back and we will see how this played itself out in the conflict between Nebuchadnezzar and his advisors with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and to be challenged with the fact that you are a God who does speak, who does communicate to us. You have communicated in the Old Testament in times past in dreams and visions, but today you have communicated to us through the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, who is the eternal Logos of God, the eternal Word of God, and you have communicated to us through your written word. 
And Father, we pray that we would not take this lightly, but we would be challenged with the fact that the eternal sovereign God of the universe has given us specific information so that we can be oriented to reality and oriented to truth. Ultimately, so that we can make the same kinds of wise decisions that Daniel made so that you might be glorified. And Father, we pray that we'd be challenged and respond to the challenge of what we've learned tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.